is the story of powerful tones from a ram's horn evidence of ancient Eldar technology? Do stories from the Guatemalan jungles about flying turtles prove aliens did visit the classical Mayan? Did Alexander the Great meet his greatest defeat against an extraterrestrial air attack? Hi, hello, and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 17, and we are going to discuss episode 6 of season 2. It's named Alien Tech and was aired on December 2nd, 2010. And we're off for quite adventure this time around. So this episode is quite scattered. We will discuss pirates, turtles, Alexander the Great and Merlin. And we will dig down on these and a few more new claims. And I managed to uncover some quite interesting real backgrounds to quite a lot of these. So sit down, relax and let's enjoy some alien technology. But first, a few things. Remember that you can find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. I also want to plug my appearance on a friend of the show, Eric McLaren's Religion Wars. You should Definitely check that episode out. A link will be in the description to this show. Or otherwise you will find this basically everywhere you find your podcast ordinarily. Well, enough of me jammering. And let's see what this alien tech is all about. So from the show's intro, I got the feeling that the show would mostly be about weaponry. But we will get a lot more than that. But to be honest, I didn't think that the episode would be a bit different and focus more on, you know, the building techniques, for example. I still remember those giant boss from episode one. But after this magnificent intro music, we open up on pirates. Yar. Ahoy there, matey! And we are taking outside Somalia back in November the 5th in 2005, and it's... 5.50 in the morning when the ship Seaborn Spirit, today named Starbreeze, was attacked. The pirates attacked the ship both with RPG rockets and machine gun fire. Seaborn Spirit was not captured and the show thanks LRAD for this. So LRAD stands for Long Range Acoustic Device and is a technology that can be used for well, many things. So this can be an acoustic hailing device, basically a long-range megaphone. It can be used as a sonic weapons within the quotations. But we will talk more about that in just a little bit. But also as a, it can be an emergency broadcaster and it's even used to scare birds and other wildlife of, away from airport runways. 
but in the show we will of course focus on the sonic weapon part. So in this mode we send a sonic wave towards a target and this beam is quite focused and it can reach up to levels on 160 decibels. But if you would stand to some maybe 40 degrees on the side, it will be 40 degrees lower. And if you stand right behind it, the volume is even 60 decibel lower than that. So the show claims that it's safe if you operate it. Kinda, it's safer, but still not safe without hearing protections. But yes, the Seaborn spirit did fend off the attack thanks to Michael Groves and some Bahadur Gurong, who with the El Eldar and a high-pressure hoe fended off the pirates. Eldar has today increased and with it, of course, the criticism. Due to the high output, it can create permanent hearing loss and damage in people that come in its way, but also to people in its vicinity. As I noted just a moment ago, you don't need to be in the direct path. You can still be on the side, meaning that you can still risk injury. So valid criticism has come up against the use of Eldar as a crowd control. But why are we really talking about that? Well, we are getting to that, <laughs> because from here we make a hop and a skip over to the Middle East and the city of Jericho, or Tel Es Sultan as it's known as today. It's been a site where people have lived for more or less centuries. The Naftian culture did stay here already back in 10,000 BCE, so there's a lot of history on this site. The walls were erected at the earliest during the pre-pottery Neolithic phase A. And even this early, the wall seems to have been up towards 3.6 meters or 12 feet for you Americans. High then and 1.8 meter or 6 feet wide. And there's a lot of inter interesting things that we couldn't spend our time talking about, but you might have guessed that we are going to talk about the Battle of Jericho from the Bible. So here the show then goes on to retell the story about the Battle of Jericho, almost as it's presented in Joshua 6, 1-22. We will, of course, in good ancient alien spirit, hear this story a couple of times. Wilcock, for one, just repeat it with similar words, but basically agreeing with what the narrator just said. They are, though, only focused on the Ark and the Ram's Horn. Then we will take a quick turn to a strange claim, because the narrator says, according to scientists, the walls fell due to an earthquake. So far, I have not been able to tell where this claim even comes from, but could just be a theory that they you know, ask, one, ask someone and they just... Well, it could have been that or this, and they stick with, you know, scientists say it was an earthquake. Sure, the town did burn and seems to have been raised in the 1500 BCE, and it was abandoned until 900 BCE, but it was not an earthquake because it was more like an army, but the wall seems to have not have been pulled down flat here either. It's a little thing to make their claims just sound more likely. 
But then we have Jonathan Young come in and tell the story yet again to fill us up on some time, basically. Let's have a quick recap since they already told us thrice. We can tell you once, dear listener, if you don't remember it. So here it comes. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carrying trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua then go and tells this to his people and they of course follow the instructions as given by God. So when then they come on the seventh day, it went. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the main gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, the men and women, young and old, the cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Note here that God told Joshua to shout and blow the horn. One of them was not enough. But after Jonathan Young's third retelling, leaving out the shouting part, David Childress come in asking, So what kind of technology were they using? It sounds utterly fantastic to us that they could have had some kind of advanced alien technology. It's clearly what they're describing. Well, to me, it sounds as people following God's command for a change in the Old Testament. And due to following, the, following it as they are told, God tear down the wall for them instead of punishing Israel for not obeying his commands. The book of Joshua isn't really meant to be taken as a historical fact. Historian and even religious scholar agree that there's little of historical value here. The, the main idea with the book is to teach the importance of following the law in the book of Deuteronomy and, of course, the Ten Commandments. And if you read the full book, you will notice the emphasis of obedience to God and to the law. And, of course, later it's become associated with Israeli nationalism, but as a later idea, it was not the initial idea. And if you are familiar with um, biblical literature, you you are aware that the Israelites and God have this love-hate relation and they usually break his command. He gets angry and punished and they're following it and he's happy. All right. So here we're going to meet a new face in the ancient alien world, Professor Tudor Parfit from the Jewish Studies University of London, who is going to make some rather strange claims for his speciality, but for having released a book called The Lost Ark of the Covenant two years earlier in which he claims to have found the Ark of the Covenant, maybe explains a bit more about, well, 
partly his reason for being on the show and why he is speaking as he does. I'm going actually to defend him a little here, giving him a way out. In the book, he speaks of the Ark almost as a metaphoric weapon. So on page 42, for example, he wrote, This is strange, I thought, as I gazed out in the night. The Ark at some level was the, the secret weapon of ancient Israelites. It's meted out death, yet it breathed life into everything. These properties seem to carry a quite powerful mystical message. So in the book, Parfit claims that the Ark was is stored at the Harar Museum of Human Science in Zimbabwe. Me and many others are skeptical. And so far, I have not found that he made a good scientific claim for how he got here. But as with other things, we will see. And now when we have digressed a little bit, let's get back to the walls. But yeah, Professor Parfit wants to call the Ark itself the weapon. He's not focusing really on the Ramson, but I think, again, it's a little bit out of context. So the show mostly talk about the connection between Eldar, a sound being made, and the walls falling down, calling it extremely good evidence. And what's interesting about the Battle of Jericho is that this particular use of the shofar clearly seems to be the same thing that we're seeing with particle beam technology, death ray technology, thunderbolt technology. It very clearly seems that once again we have an extraterrestrial technology that the ancient people had at the ready that they could use when needed for military campaigns. And yeah, this is used only once in the Bible, never again. Um, So I see a couple of issues. Firstly, is that um, it doesn't really make sense that the sound would, would knock down walls. Sure, if you try hard enough you can break a glass that's close to a speaker with maybe a hundred decibel output depending of course what frequency and such you can play from it but since we don't have buildings collapsing during rock concerts that you know typical reach around 110 decibel or nightclubs with exploding drink glasses everywhere i guess we can assume that the power needed is a lot more than uh, what were usually offered. Then we also had a limit by living on Earth where our pesky atmosphere pre- prevent us from cranking up the volume to 11. The numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, the and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. So the theoretical maximum decibel is 192. Can something be louder than this? Sure, but then it really stops being a sound and is basically just a shockwave explosion. Without extreme ear protection, you will also lost your hearing, even standing behind the device. But if the destruction would have happened, wouldn't it have done more than just blast down the walls? It would have destroyed a lot more of the city. In the Bible, we learned that only the wall fell and then the Israel move in and kill everyone by hand down to the last donkey. Their narrative doesn't make sense in that way, at least if they don't want to be true to the source material that they're claiming are this excellent evidence for what they are claiming. We then meet Professor Taylor Wang, who is also a new face for the series, and Michael Denning, who both give a sciencey-sounding explanation. 
but it's more or less boiled down to if you have found the right frequency, if you have the apparatus that you can feed unlimited power, it would be possible to destroy the walls. But I guess we're left with a few what if, and of course I'm cherry picking. If the force is strong enough to bring down the walls, well, it would destroy more of the town. It's simply built Jericho, so to say. So again, their arguments aren't really arguments for what they're trying to say. If they're not saying that it destroyed everything, but again, the why would the Bible then say that they need to kill everything one by hand? It's a bit strange. I'm not buying it, at least. But we're going to leave Jericho and Shofars to talk about something different. Would it be possible to move things with the help of sound? Could ancient cultures had some access to levitation machines that use sound? And could this help explain the mammoth stone structure that have baffled modern scientists for centuries? But not really. So we are then transitioned to the northeastern Peloponnese and the ancient city of Mycenae. Here the show starts to talk about the fortification and the walls of this beautiful site. Mycenae is not to be confused with the site with the same name on Crete, but this one has been occupied since at least Neolithic times. The show will focus mainly on the wall, but due to the long occupation period of the site, we can expect that there's been, well, quite some remodeling done on this site. The thing the show will focus on most is the Cyclopean wall. And it's true that the site contains a style of architecture that it's known as Cyclopean. The name comes down to us from Pliny the Elder's book, Natural History, where Pliny claims that the name originate from Aristoteles. The walls of this type of design were built in the late Helladakic III period around 1300 BCE. The design is most likely inspired from the Hittites. We have to remember that the world was not as isolated as the show wants us to believe. And at the same time they are saying that it's more connected than we think it is. It's a bit confusing. <laughs> Or they want us to believe when it fits them, at least might be the proper way to view this. But the Mediterranean has for a long time had a tradition of trade and sailing. And con- in connection to one of these palaces that have this Cyclopean architecture, we actually find a scarab from Queen Tai, who was the wife of Amenhotep III, who you might recognize as the parent of the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten. That's a very common person in this show, but um, they seem to leave out this connection, at least for now. But according to Pliny, the name comes from the fact that the stones are so big for one man to lift. Therefore, it might, according to Pliny, or according to Aristoteles, according to Pliny, being Cyclops who built this. The show, of course, latches onto this narrative, and we're going to talk about it in some more in just a moment. But what really makes this type of architecture stands out that it's rough and simple. The stones are not really dressed properly, and there's gaps that's filled with smaller stones. Many of the stones in the walls are big, but not so big that not maybe two, maybe three people could lift it and move it around. 
The walls here on Messina are made out of sandstone and this stone is quite easy to shape compared to other stones. And of course it weighs a bit less than for example a granite or heavier stone. And you don't really need two advanced tools to quarry them due to the softness. But let's see what the alienists have to say here. So we have Philip Coppens come in saying that the name is evident that evidence that people back then knew it was impossible for people to have built it. But the same logic then must state that there's been real trolls in Scandinavia who moved boulders around because there's a story that we can tell kids up here. And Philip Coppens continues to claim that the site is beyond the capabilities of the people who live there. I'm not really sure when he think it was built, but I think we have been quite accustomed to the show downplaying the capabilities of humans. As I mentioned, this is not early, early history. It's really late in comparison to many other sites around the world, and it's simple. So again, they are filling in things as they want to not necessarily with the evidence required. They bring up the treasury of Atreus or tomb of Agamemnon as it's known in the past and especially the lintel above the entrance. There's a lot of things that that's impressive about this tomb but I would not count the 250 stone lintel as being the greatest of them at least. So this Tholos or beehive tomb was built during the Bronze Age somewhere around 1250 BC. Of course give or take somewhere then. So close to the building of Cyclopean walls at least. And again we have moved bigger things already back then. But we continue with this quote from Giorgio. It is perfect. Just unbelievable. Now, we would have difficulties today moving that stuff around. Now, I'm not saying that we today cannot do it. I'm not saying that. But if we're struggling with our modern technology, is it really logical to suggest that our ancestors did this with pivots and with little ropes and with wooden rollers? And I'm sure that Sokolos would have issues moving a large stone alone, but this is plainly a strawman argument, basically. Let's see, the heaviest object moved to date is uh, Golfax C, that has the impressive weight of 1.5 million, yes, million tons. And if you think that was just one time fluke, we moved a little smaller platform called Troll A that weighs only 1.3 million, million again, tons. The Troll A was moved at one knot an hour, so sure it was slow, but you needed only about eight tow boats to get this huge, I think it was a gas platform, into the position 200 kilometers out at sea. But we have moved a lot of things. Maybe we are not fast, but I would say that we do it a lot easier than previous cultures and civilizations. And I think this is a good place to again bring up Wally Wallington that we talked about in the last episode with David Anderson. Wallington is the guy who built his own Stonehenge in his backyard by himself, just using gravity and a bit of fulcrum and ingenuity. 
And again, if he can do this perfectly fine by himself, note that I think that the ancient civilization can figure out a method to get stones up high. But let's move on. We have Michael Barra, who agrees with this notion that moving heavy things are almost impossible. Our narrator then tried to move us toward their preferred explanation with the following quote. The key might be found not by studying the laws of physics, but by exploring the interdisciplinary science of acoustics and the principle of acoustic levitation. So the theory seems to be that they use some sort of acoustic levitation device. And we have Thomas Vallone who has a degree in engineering in physics say that it's possible that the ancient people had access to levitation devices. But for full transparency, I think it's good to mention that Vallone is a very active proponent of free energy. But then we move to Taylor Wang again, who I can't really pin down in this episode. He comes from a great background and is an actual astronaut. They don't really bring this up in the episode. I'm not sure why, but Wang was the first person of Chinese origin in space, for example. That's quite impressive. I think that we can put him in the same group as Professor Sarah Seeger, maybe. People who want to find alien life and was not maybe completely aware who they dealt with. Let's give him a way out until we find something that proves it differently. But Dr. Wang shows shows us an acoustic positioning device that can position a small uh, 10-gram ball within the box with the help of sound waves. And even with the editing, the background noise is very loud. And you can clearly see that Dr. Wang used earplugs, so this is not a quiet thing or place that they show us. From the looks of it, we haven't gone much further yet. From the look of the machines, it might have gone quiet and operating above the 20,000 hertz line. So people can't hear it, but it's not very practical outdoor, of course, depending on the area and situation. Something that's really clear is that the technology still does not do more than drops of water and moving around ping pong balls. It's cool, but we are far from using it on a larger scale. The next step seems still to be to be able to use steel ball in this test, according to scientists, as the show put it. (sighs) But armed with this knowledge that sound levitation might be real, we go to Stonehenge. So we have made quite a jump from Greece why you might ask well since there's a myth that merlin built the stonehenge well it must be true so let's see what they have to say about this so dear giorgio comes on the screen and tells us the story about how merlin armed with a rod or a magic wand moved this stone some 200 miles to today's site ending this quite short story with the ancient with that ancient myth is a bridge to understand what happened in the past. Somewhat can agree, but not in the way that Georgia want to put it. Michael Barrow fills in that there's a number of these stories out there, and all of them must come from a true source. 
does not give any examples, but hints that there's a lot of them. Trust me. So let's have a little look at this. Giorgio is right that there's a myth that Merlin built a Stonehenge. He does not precise which one he using in his retelling, so I choose to use the oldest and most spread version of this history. Note that there, there is more out there, but they are usually younger, but they tend to involve Merlin making deals with the devil and religious motif like that. But the today oldest and what seems to be the foundation for all the other retellings is the story that can be found in Geoffrey of Monmouth book, The History of Kings of Britons. And this manuscript was written in 1136. But the copy I used was translated by Aaron Thompson and was published by Cambridge in 1999. The story takes place before the fame King Arthur and involves his uncle, King Ambrosian Aurelianus. And he had tried to make peace and did set up a peace meeting with the Saxons that they were warring against. But even though no weapons were allowed, these treacherous Saxons hid some knives on them. And then during the meeting, they started to attack. But Aurelianus' men fought back and won the day. But the king, he wanted a fitting monument and he went to Merlin for advice and he replied to honor the burying place of these men with an everlasting monument. Send for the giant stance, which is in Kilarus, a mountain in Ireland. For there is a structure of stones there which none of this age could rise without the profound knowledge of the mechanical arts. They are stones of vast magnitude and wonderful quality. And if they can be placed here, as they are there, round this spot of ground, they will stand forever. When he's met with Lothar, Merlin explains that stones are from Africa and have special powers. So Suclos could have gone a bit further than the 200 miles that he used if he would have wanted. But the Britons, with King Arthur's uncle in the front, goes to Ireland, fight some Irish knights, and then it's time to move the stones. So the Merlin, uh, Merlin asks the army to try first, and they try with ropes and force, but they, they can't really get the thing down. And after Merlin has finished laughing, it says, then began his contrivance. When he had placed in order the engines that were necessary, he took down the stones with an incredible facility and gave directions for carrying them to the ships. And the stones then go back to England and Merlin obeyed the king's order and put the stones up in a circle round the sepulchre in exactly the same way as they had been arranged on Mount Kilaras in Ireland, thus proving that his artistry was worth more than any brute strength. So if you follow along in the story, it's, as you noted, not really about magic. Sure, it's in there, but not really in regards to how Merlin moves the stone. There's no mention of magic, just ingenuitive. 
with creativity and brain, he accomplished something that brute force could not. And even we have depictions of Merlin building the Stonehenge in a 14th century manuscript. If you look close in the show notes, you can see this picture. To be honest, Jeffrey of um, Monmouth was probably closer to the truth about Stonehenge than the ancient alien crowd, proving yet again that maybe we haven't become smarter, but maybe we have become dumber. All right, but how did they move these stones according to the show then? Michael Barra says that the stories he mentioned before involved people chanting, so there's probably some sort of sound levitation. According to George Norrie from Coast to Coast, with the AM, PM, whatever, it would have been almost impossible to do it by hand. He says, I mean, there's no way that human beings, even a hundred thousand of them, could pull these things. They've done experiments by putting hands around blocks. You can't get enough hands in there. You can't get 200,000 hands to lift a block. And once you roll it with all these people, how do you move it? And the sad reality here that they wasn't really moved that far. And they were probably somewhere in the 32 kilometers or for you American listener, 20 miles away. Analysis of the stone composition seems to indicate that they originate from the area. 20 miles is still quite a walk, but it's a lot easier than 200 miles or heck, even getting them from Ireland. But we know exactly when they moved the stones. No, not exactly, but we brought up the nearest people who had a tradition of moving large blocks of stone as part of one of their rituals. And we again have video of this tradition. It is hard and requires a lot of people, but I have never understood the ancient alien position that the people could not have done this because it takes time and requires people. As if they found the found ledgers and um, the ancient Brits were running uh, England as some predatory company with steep deadlines, uh, making people poop in buckets and <laughs> I'm not sure what. If it was something they did have, was time especially Stonehenge it was not built predominantly to be a burial for a king or something that would have a fixed end date that we need to get it ready until that no they had time and Stonehenge was not built in one phase with this bigger stone I think it's uh, towards phase three four so we have earlier phases where it's a quite simple construction and then it grows as the site becomes more important to the people around it. But we're going to round off this section of the show with a quote from Taylor Wang that I feel is a bit mine. He, as if he's humoring the producer, let me know what you think. Is he part of the alienists or not? Well, everything is possible. We have no way to rule in or rule out aliens because human technology is very primitive at this stage. And you look at Earth, has only survived four billion years. But there are planets billions and billions of years ahead of us. Their technology and their knowledge can be so far ahead of us that we can't even imagine. But we leave the island of Britain for this time and move to a new topic. The narrator says that the UFOs are a modern invention. 
according to the scholars. What scholars? Again, that doesn't matter to the show. <laughs> but they are actually right and wrong here. Unidentified flying objects have technically been reported since basically ever. If it's flying and can't be identified, well, you have an unidentified flying object. But the leap of connecting these things to aliens is rather mo modern. And especially the shape of, you know, the round shape that we will focus quite a lot on in this show actually stems from the report of Kenneth Arlen, Arnold, who reportedly claimed to have seen nine saucer-like aircraft flying past his plane. And this was in 1947, a good while after Orson Welles' dramatic reading of War of the Worlds. But it's rather after this point the shape of the craft became saucer-like. We talked about this a little back in episode 9 with Blake Smith. That was a great episode, you should go back and listen to it. Now we're going to play the association game here, while David Childress speak about how UFOs have been depicted in ancient art. We have played this game a couple of times now, but it's always nice to do. This is a common trope among the ancient alien people, since art can be free and does not necessarily depict things exactly how they look. We don't think that, for example, Salvador Dali painted in an environment so hot that clocks melted like ice. Or we don't look at Scandinavian petroglyphs that people went around with giant erection while plowing fields or fighting. Uh, all right, uh, we're not going to king shame here on this podcast, but well, <laughs> I think you catch the drift at least. But we see a, a bunch of zoomed-in petroglyphs. Unfortunately, I have not been able to trace down all of them before the release, but the hunt will continue. At the same time, it does not really matter. We, we see more from Tassil Najir and the Lasaus cave paintings. Basically, at least in this part, if it contains something round and or strange, they put it in this slideshow. And we're moving on to talk what they call Sumerian disc and claims that people are flying in them. And on the screen we see an Armenian queen with a servant on a funeral stela. The stela is dated to the 8th century BCE and today can be found at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. But on this stela we see two people sitting and above them we see a winged disc that looks like a flower. This winged disc is usually associated with the sun and more exactly royalty and is often featured within the Mesopotamian civilization. And from this ancient aircraft we go in Mesopotamia, we travel to Egypt where the show at 1953 claims that there's another disc with wings. They seem to just ignore the huge scarab or the dung beetle that's connected to the ball that they're claiming is the flying disc and also is the origin of the wings that we show. As you might be familiar with in the ancient Egyptian pantheon, Ra was pictured to roll the sun across the sky, similar to the beetle, and therefore there's always been this special connection between the beetle and the dung ball in Egyptian art since it's symbolizing the sun and its travel across the sky. But let's leave the Middle East for some time. 
because now we're going to take on a new adventure and a new artifact that we actually haven't seen on this show before. But before that, let's have a short break because I think we all need it. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Let's talk about what I assume the show feels is one of the greatest pieces of evidence for flying saucers in ancient times. We are going to Guatemala and the narrator gives us a very brief background on Guatemala and basically in general. (laughs) And we start then to talk about the object in question. And it turns out to be a turtle. Or rather, if we look closer, we see that it seems to be a man who is emerging from the mouth of the turtle. And at this point, Giorgio tells us. And when I asked the local archaeologist there, what is this? They said, without the flinching of an eye, well, this is, according to legend, the giant flying turtles which flew around in Guatemala. The entire body is aerodynamically fashioned. The extremities are pressed in an aerodynamic fashion against the body of this turtle. And if you look closely, it's as if there's some modern day fighter pilot glasses or goggles. This right here is from the same culture, from the same region where they created a turtle in clay so they knew exactly what a turtle looked like it looks like a snapping turtle and what we have here that is everything but a turtle it's something else in their frame of reference they were able to use the turtle as the best example of what they might have seen that the gods used to fly around in So is this the smoking gun? The evidence for alien visitation, as Giorgio seems to claim. Well, with ancient aliens, it's never as simple as you might expect. And I think we're now fairly used to them having an artistic approach towards the truth, or how we should put it. But remember what Giorgio said, because we will get back to this in just a moment. So the place they are talking about or where this was, according to them, found is called Topoxte and is located in a total, on a total of five islands in the Laguna Yaxa, close to the more known site of Yaxa. As the crow flies, there's only some 24 kilometers to the even more famous site of Tikal. Little is really known about the Poxte and so far there's not been that much research done on this site. So of course the ancient alien people use this to their advantage. Most of the construction of the site is located on three of the islands and it seems to have been founded towards the end of middle pre-classic period. So this turtle that Sukalas presented earlier, it, it looks rather strange to be honest. It looks new. It's definitely not ceramics, but looks like wood and in a very good condition for being excavated in that case. If we turn to the article Sukalos of Road called The Giant Flying Turtles of Guatemala, 
publishing in the anthology Holy Odin, this is a long title. The Disinformation Guide to Ancient Aliens, Lost Civilization, Astonishing Archaeology, and Hidden History. <laughs> we get a bit of a different story. So this book was published 2005, so this is before he went on camera. But in the article, he was asked to go and see the mechanic in a nearby town who had copies of some artifacts. So the mechanic showed him his turtle and tells you about his flying turtles. Not an archaeologist, as he stated before, mind you. And as it also turns out, it's the mechanic who carved this replica. The original is supposed to be at an unnamed university at Guatemala City. And there's several universities in Guatemala City. So tracking it down without more info is rather difficult. <laughs> but to be precise, he wrote, What does this represent? I asked the mechanic. Without raising an eyebrow, he said, This is a representation of the giant flying turtles in which the god flew around a long time ago. What? I asked. Without the slightest hesitation, he repeated what he had just said. And he goes on in the article to present that. Of course the critics now will say that the turtle is only meant to be looked at symbolically. The artisan used the turtle's shape to illustrate an important warrior's strength who is invisible in combat because he is as strong as a turtle's indestructible shell, or something like that. And something like that is what he says. It's not me adding things here. But is this true? Well, until we see at least a picture of the original, I'm not, to be honest, even sure it exists in this shape or form. And I find it off-putting that the account of Georgios' own experience differs in Georgios' retelling of it. That's a little bit weird. So he changes things as he sees fit, it seems like. But turtles are not uncommon in the Mayan tradition and they symbolize a number of different things. We have, for example, depictions on how the Mayan deity comes out of the back of a turtle. Not really fitting on to what we're looking at here. Something that's maybe more likely. More, not, I don't think this is, but I bring it up so you at least know what we're talking about. We also have depictions of uh, Patun, also known as a god N, who is emerging or wear a turtle shell. But the motif of people that emerges from the mouth is a common idea in my art and religion. So the motif is coming from out from a mouth symbolizes traveling across different spaces. This might be best seen on the murals of Yaxashilam. What's differently is this turtle. They usually don't use turtles for this, so it's not too common animal that they use but as i said the turtle is a popular figure in the mayan art religion and society so in that sense it's not weird it's just that we don't know exactly what it's meant and uh, at the same time what i brought up recently is more viable explanation that then it was a ufo 
And if you knew where the original was and more about its history and exactly where and in what context it was found, we would probably be able to give a lot better of explanation. But that in due time and something for future scholars to look into. From Guatemala and the Flying Turtles, we travel across the globe to the border towards India, where a quite famous character will experience something otherworldly. Halfway around the world, in 329 BC, the Greek ruler Alexander the Great planned the invasion of India. So the date 329 BCE is a little weird, but... It's not impossible, at least, that Alexander was planning the next part of the campaign then. But the campaign lasted, in reality, between 327 and 325 BCE. But from here we go from a little bit weird to a lot of weird, because David Childress is telling us that Alexander the Great's armies was attacked and die-bombed even before they got into India. As Alexander's army was getting ready to cross the Indus and invade India, suddenly in the sky appeared these flying disks. And they began dive bombing at the war elephants that were part of Alexander's army. And what these flying disks did was cause stampedes within Alexander's own war elephants, who then ran amok throughout his army, uh, tearing up the camps and everything. And after that, Alexander's generals met with him and they said, no, we're not going into India. This, this is it. We're going to turn back. And that was the end of that war campaign. So let's try to figure this out, since this differs quite a lot from what's written in the ancient sources that I've encountered about this campaign, such as Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans and the Megasthenes Indica. The claim seems to build on two accounts, and the first one is from a Frank Edwards, who in 1959 wrote in his book Stranger Than Fiction. He tells of two strange craft that divide repeatedly at his army until the war elephants, the men and the horses all panicked and refused to cross the river where the incident occurred. What did the thing look like? His historian described them as great shining silvery shields spitting fire around the rims. Things that came from the skies and returned to the skies. Unfortunately, Frank Elvers does not give any reference or source on this claim. But building on this, Alberto Fagnolo wrote in the magazine Clopeus, published in 1966, that there's accounts of shields flying over the Macedonian camp. But here we're not given any reference either, or what ancient source that's used. But looking into this, it seems as Fagnolo is basing his writing partly on Edwards and the writer Quintus Curtius. The latter wrote about the siege of Tyre in 332 BCE, how the Tyrians used heated bronze shields filled with sands and excrement to sling it over the attackers. But Frank Edwards claims the trace is a bit more unclear, but it could be possible 
that some inspiration was drawn from Epistola Alexandri ad Aristotelem, letter from Alexander to Aristoteles. The issue there is that, well, <laughs> it's a known hoax, probably written sometimes in the 4th or 5th century. But in there the author talks about a ball of fire flying over Alexander's army, who has taken it as a bad omen. But what about this silvery shield? We heard copper before. Well, it actually can be a confusion for Edward because during the campaign in India, his troops changed name from, I'm sorry, any Greek out there, Hypaspist and Agriraspides, or the silver shields. Again, sorry. But unfortunately, it seems as if the ancient sources are not describing UFOs in connection to Alexander the Great's campaign in general. But why did Alexander's troop revolt then? It was close to the river of uh, Hyphasis, and they had been out on a campaign for a really, really long time. Remember that Alexander the Great basically campaigned from when he took the throne until, well this point in time. It's been many, many long years, many, many long battle and the prospect to maybe face larger armies to the west and not seeing an end for the campaign ever probably didn't help. So Alexander's general Quinus is supposed to have said when hearing his commander's refusal to return, long to see their parents, their wives and children, their homeland. Again, we don't need any aliens or UFO to explain the army's longing to get home. I think that this might be one of the most human feelings. But from Alexander we travel to our modern time, where Stephen M. Greer and Childress are trying to explain how UFO fly and move around. Childress has apparently figured this out, saying... It's artificial gravity. So when you're inside of a a gravitational field that you're creating yourself around your craft, the gravity of the Earth doesn't have a force on you. So, (laughs) we're a long way from creating artificial gravity, but there's been some small-scale trials. I'm not convinced that Childress explains gravity properly, to be honest. Gravity affects everything and Earth gravity affects more than us, for example, well, the moon. <laughs> our gravity is responsible for the shape of our moon and the sun's gravity reaches and interferes in turn with our planet. So that a UFO would create its own field that's unaffected by gravity around it sounds a bit much sci-fi novel, to be honest. If we have any listener who more know who might know more than me that i don't think impossible on this area please reach out and we might be able to provide a better explanation on how goddamn gravity works from here we meet paul muller who presents his vehicle the new era and the new era seems to be taken straight out of an episode of jetson and to be honest i would not mind having one of those to fly around in it looks awesome but if you hope to be able to buy one, it seems that we're all out of luck. Paul Moller's company seems to have had some issues creating the, a craft that passed the free flight test. So basically, it could move around tethered, 
but as soon as they tried without any support help, it did not go well, it seems like. Today it seems to have gone dormant, if not even bankrupt, with a website that's not been updated since 2017. So we're moving into the last part of this episode. And it's been quite a ride to be honest. But from the quick and nimble anti-gravity UFO we move to Kennedy Space Station. And we see the Endeavour take off. It's a massive amount of smoke and fire and we have Sukla saying it's a truly magnificent sight. And I can't say that I don't agree with this. But this period of uh, peace and uh, agreement comes to a swift end when both Nori and Sukalos start to talk about people being on the moon in ancient times and that the gods always appear with a lot of fire and smoke. So it seems as we're going to talk about ancient rockets. On the screen we can see an artist's rendition of the lid of From Pascal's Tomb. If you would like to more more about this lid, I'd recommend you to listen to episode 11, where we talk a little bit more in depth about this. What I say here is basically boils down to ancient people not having the vocabulary to describe rockets or UFO. Therefore, they call the UFO and alien gods and chariots. They claim that in all religions, fire and smoke is always connected to gods coming to earth. Stephen Greer says even... When you're dealing with this subject and you look at the ancient literature, you have to look at it through the lens of how was it being experienced by a civilization with no foundation for understanding the science, the technology. Meaning basically, if you decide it's a UFO before you read the ancient text, they are a lot easier to find. <laughs> we continue to bring up examples of what they have found, fire and smoke, such as dragons in China, circles repeat the Huang Di, or the story of the Yellow Emperor, yet again, still with the whole flair that Huang Di comes to earth in a dragon, and then he stepped out and then disappeared by entering back into a dragon. We talk about this quite a lot in the past, so we will leave it for this as now. But from the Chinese dragon we go to Greece. Michael Barra talks about how the gods in Greek mythology were traveling in chariots of fire. The only god though that comes to mind is the chariot of Helios that's described as fiery. The rest of the gods seems to have used sure except <laughs> flying chariots, <laughs> ordinary chariots uh, with immortal horses. But from Greece we have Sukalos saying the following. In the Old Testament, we can read about a glowing furnace that descended from the sky. And sometimes this glowing furnace is described as a chariot of fire or as the glory of the Lord. This is strange because the only mention of a furnace in the Bible is in relation to the book of Daniel. Chapter 3, for verse 8 to 25, they tell the story of when King Nebuchadnezzar condemned three Jews to death by burning in a hot furnace. But God protects the condemned persons and they can walk around in the furnace unhurt. This is another of those times where Georgia would need to provide. This is strange because. 
The only mention of a furnace in the Bible is in relation to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 8 to 25. They tell the story of when King Nebuchadnezzar condemned three Jews to death by burning in a hot furnace. But God protects the condemned persons and they can walk around in the furnace unhurt. This is another of those times where Giorgio would need to provide a source for his claim for us to look further into it. But as it stands, what he says is incorrect. But we are going to stay in the Middle East, but the show will present depictions of the sun god Shamash that can be found in the northwest palace of Nimrod. During this we have our beloved Van Daniken talking about the Gilgamesh epic and that in the Gilgamesh uh, travels up to the god Anu. During the flight it's supposed that Gilgamesh described the earth from above. A nice tale but yet again we're left without any reference. And going through the 12 tablets that make up the story I, I do find a few mentions about Anu but not as described here. So on table one, for example, Anu hears the prayer of the inhabitants of the city of Uruk to save them from the horrible Gilgamesh. So Anu sends a match called Enkidu. So in the beginning, Gilgamesh was a quite rough character, so to say. But we don't really hear more for Anu until tablet six, where Anu's daughter Ishtar comes to see her father because Gilgamesh have refused her advances. So she wants daddy Anu to send down the bull of heaven. And we will see Anu yet again in tablet number 7 telling Enkidu that he or Gilgamesh need to die for killing the previous mentioned bull. And after this we don't really see Anu again. So with the furnace again without any reference from Van Daniken we can throw this fanciful story out the window but being in Mesopotamia we can't leave Sitchin out of this so the show will go on talking a bit about something they call Shem you might be familiar with Shem since it's one of Noah's sons but this is not the context here so in the show Jason Martell claims that the ancient Sumerians had a word called Shem and was some sort of space capsule shaped as a pine cone. The priest, according to Martel, were entering this capsule to travel up and down to the gods. But as you might suspect, things are maybe not as they see. So the word Shem is not Sumerian, it's actually Hebrew. But basically they have the same meaning as the Akkadian word Shumu, that means name or renown. So a whole part here does not really make any sense. It seems as if Martel even got a pinecone wrong from Sitchin, the 12th planet. In there he attributed the word Mu to a pinecone shaped object that rises straight up. No reference to a Sumerian lexicon, as you might suspect by now. But if you would pick up a lexicon made by ancient Mesopotamians, you would realize that the word Mu refers to the word Shamu that could be translated to heaven or part of heaven. So note the little different here. We have the word Shumu with a U and Shamu with a A. 
just so we're clear about this, it's two different words. Sounding similar, but different. Again, something we can move down the garbage pile, basically. Let's take a quick jump over to Greece again to discuss the ILO pile. So this is a sort of steam engine shaped as a wheel invented by the mathematician Hero, according to the show. And we get to meet uh, John Robert Tyndall, who is credited as the founder of Tyndall Vision Laboratories. He demonstrates a replica, so instead of pistons, it has two exhausts that make the wheel spin as the water steam is pushed out of it. At one point, as he demonstrated it, also almost exploding Tyndall's face. But what is so fascinating about this? Well, according to Childress, we don't know where Hero got the idea for this design, and since it's not using pistons and are saucer-shaped, it must therefore be, you know, the little green men's in the sky, or grey, I'm not really sure what color he thinks they are. Did we mention that the contraption is named after the wind god Aeolus? If you have paid attention, we know that if a god God is involved, we should read this as alien. But yes, the contraption is named after the wind god Aeolus. To be fair, it's not really invented by Hero. It was written down as a description by Hero. Before him, we have Vitruvius, a Roman architect and engineer who also recorded this device but two both of these draw from Thesebius, a Greek inventor who was working in the Ptolemaic Alexandria. Hero was just one who described it in such a detail that we can reconstruct it but the Greek did have a lot of inventions involving engineering and steam among other things if you're interested in these type of things, you should, if you happen to be in Athens one day, go to the Museum of Ancient Greek Technology. It will be a blast for you and you will see a lot of nice things there. All right, we're getting into the last section of this episode. May 2010. Firing from a warship at a distance of nearly two miles, a ray of intense laser energy burned through the targets, traveling at speeds more than 300 miles per hour. The test seems to have been on a 50,000 watt fiber optic laser. I can't find much info about it, but it took place at least. I've confirmed, and uh, it seems like we have more powerful lasers that seems to be able to intercept incoming drones at least. So that's fascinating. But uh, Stephen Greer thinks that ancient people had access to death ray. And with that we're moved back in time more precisely to the year 214 BCE and the siege of Syracuse. And yes, we are going to talk about Archimedes' death ray. You who might pay some attention might think now that the siege of Syracuse was between 2013 to 2012. Good catch, but that's ancient aliens for you. <laughs> so the death ray of Archimedes is usually depicted as a single mirror, but most modern scholars seem to agree that it's more likely several of them if this contraption existed. And if you want to find it, you have better luck using the term Archimedes heat ray instead of death ray but 
the existence of this have been debated since the renaissance basically um, if it's really existed or part of fantasy we don't have any first hand sources of it and no great details on what and how they use this and there's been many attempts to recreate the device in modern time the most famous might be the tv series mythbusters we tried this in episode 7 of uh, season 4 in 2006 they deemed the myth being busted after having very little success with it the same year my mit attempted the same experiment using mirrors with success the team argued that with polished bronze shield the array would only had been or needed to have been 1.5 times larger than what they used with their modern mirrors. So it's plausible at least that this was used. Seems as if it might have, it would have needed the right conditions, of course. But more research and discussion, or even better, hard evidence would be needed to put this question to a rest finally. But Unfortunately, I think we won't see that day. But before, but from here, we're going to talk about the inspiration of such a device that people during this time and um, that they would not be able to think of this. Childress even says, A technology that would have seemed like magic to our primitive ancestors. But as we have discussed many times now, this type of thinking is quite insulting towards our ancestors. Remember also that this event took place somewhere in 2012 BCE. But from the Archimedes Heath Ray death ray, we go to India and the Dorje. And it's Giorgio Sukolos who talks about it, seemingly unaware of Dorje being the Tibetan word for Varya. Sure, they have similar meaning, but using another language were to talk about the Indian version of it does not bode very well for credibility. But the Varya is a ritual weapon among the Hindu gods that has properties of a diamond that is indestructible and it sends lightning bolts. But we have this semi-mythical and mystical method to move over to Scotland where we find the evidence for them being the real deal. So across the Scottish countryside we have force that seems to be vitrified, almost like glass or glazed pottery, according to the show. David Wilcock explains that. Here you have these stone buildings in which an analysis of the outside comes to the conclusion that they were heated to over a thousand degrees Celsius in temperature. Conventional fire could not have reached this heat. You needed a sustained burn at a thousand degrees Celsius for a long period of time. Why is it that it's only these forts that have this type of charring where they're actually glazed like pottery on the outside? So first of all, does this vitrified fort exist? The answer here is yes. And there's about 60 of them known to date. Are they as the show describes? Well, here they are maybe a bit of artistic license again. So the stone for the most part looks like normal rock embedded in maybe tar or asphalt. Sometimes you can see drips in the blacker vitrification. 
But if you don't know what you're looking at, I think most people will not even notice as something different here and write it off as just some stone. So we know that they exist, not as glass or glazed ceramics, but they exist at least. How about temperature? Wilcock has a point that you need more than a thousand degrees often. To be precise, the process usually requires something about 1100 degrees Celsius. Sounds as a lot, but remember that this is during the Scottish Iron Age. If you want to stretch it, maybe late Bronze Age. So to melt bronze, you need to have 900 degrees Celsius. To melt iron, you need something up to 1500 degrees Celsius. So we can state with confidence that they had the capability to vitrify stone, if they would want to. And there's even experiments back in 1934 already, who was then repeated in 1937, that you with common logs could vitrify the stones quite easily. They did note that they were not sure why you would want to do this, but that it was possible at least. We're still not sure why they did this. It's not done everywhere. And where it's done, it's not always done all over the wall, so to say. Sometimes it's on the inside, sometimes on the outside, some patches here and there. And the explanation is probably more mundane that both we and the proponents of ancient aliens think. But they used this to talk about the Celtic god Lu, and we had and he had a spear that shoot fire and whatnot. This part is similar to the all the others god sections that we have covered so far. And since they don't offer anything new here or really interesting, I'm going to just skip it, skip it over. We explain the vitrification beyond reasonable doubt in this little section already. So we're going to end here and we're going to close this on the following quote from Giorgio. And I think... It is merely a reinvention of history. That all the stuff that we have today has been around before and that our past is not science fiction, but science fact. And he seems so proud over that line. But we did not watch science fact. No, we did watch very poor science fiction. And with that, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend you to visit diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. And you can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write an email in all caps, you can find my contact info on the website. And on our website, you will find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast. And I will often provide further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up. The intro music was created by Alexander Nakarada. And our fantastic outro is made by a band called Trautsgruve, who will sing us their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. And remember, check out Religious Wars. I make an appearance there. Great stuff, great stuff. And until next time, keep shoveling that science. Oh,
redan är besatt Men jag skyddar mig För jag har foliehatt Och så säger ni Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 